Rav Sadia Gaon says, God does not leave his nation at any period without a scholar whom he inspires and enlightens, so that he in turn may so instruct and teach her, and that thereby her condition shall be bettered. Well, I'm not so enlightened, and inspiration is rare, but I do have an aspiration to teach and instruct, and thereby better our condition. Because I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Episode 17, Rav Sa'ajagaon. You know, there's a fundamental question about the role that individuals play in shaping history. It's called the great man theory. Do circumstances shape the individual, or does the individual drive circumstance? And no matter what side you take on the question, and it's quite a debate, it's beyond question that there was one figure who did more than any other to lay the intellectual and spiritual groundwork for the Jewish Middle Ages, and that's Rav Sa'aja Gaon. But before we can actually speak about him, we've got to ask a very simple question. What were the Jewish Middle Ages? Now recall that periodization, this post-facto attempt to break up the undifferentiated flow of time into digestible chunks, is a dangerous endeavor. Though it can facilitate our ability to digest what amounts to an endless quantity of information about the past, it's never a neutral act. For instance, the Middle Ages. Around about the 14th century, European thinkers, writers, and artists began to look back and celebrate the art and culture of ancient Greece and Rome. This was the neoclassical longing which fueled the Renaissance. Now, we've spoken about the danger of placing an ideal of what could be in a bygone era. And because of their idealization of the past of Greco-Roman culture, these thinkers dismissed the period after the fall of Rome as middle or even dark ages. It was really even more than a dismissal. It was a judgment which asserted that the culture of the previous eight or nine centuries was a failed endeavor. And as I said in the past, I believe that the Jewish story is not a neoclassical tale. We love our past. We honor it. We bring it forward by fighting with it. But our redemption lies ahead, not behind. The story we're telling is one of cultural evolution. And that means that every age, no matter how dark, is a context for some critical aspect of life and meaning to emerge. So, at the risk of compressing a complex and lengthy period into a soundbite, don't worry, we'll unpack it in the coming episodes, I'm going to say that the Middle Ages were a time filled with two things, the quest for right knowledge of God and the battle to maintain the boundaries of identity. Really, another way to say this is that it was a time of kedusha, of sanctity, And we have to remember that that word has two faces within Hebrew, separate and devoted. The core mission of Am Yisrael is to maintain the connection between heaven and earth, that place where the finite and the infinite touch. Remember when Ezra and the returnees came back from the Babylonian exile? Their focus was on rebuilding the altar, and that remained the symbol of this connection point throughout the entire Second Temple period. And then... With the second destruction, the oral law emerged as the meeting point between God and creation, with the Mishnah as the portable homeland within which our conversation between the finite and the infinite could progress. And now, as the exile has deepened and dispersion has become more extreme, 
It will be the communities that build themselves around a devotion to God and Torah which will maintain that contact between the bounded and the unbounded. Like I said, in the ideal, devotion is the essential aspect of Kedusha, and separate, basically a function of that. It's like marriage, which in Hebrew is known as Kedushin. You are devoted to another person, and it's because of the devotion of that relationship that you are therefore separate from others. Kedusha is primarily defined by devotion, and symptomatically identified by separateness. But that's the ideal. In reality, it's all too often much easier to train people to be separate from others in hopes that you can ultimately teach them what they're meant to be devoted to. So, the, de- the desire for divine knowledge is actually going to drive Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in very similar fashions in the Middle Ages. Nevertheless, their identity battles are going to be somewhat different because the Christian and Muslims will form empires, they'll establish state religions and wage war on what amounts to a global scale, whereas the Jewish minority within these Christian and Muslim societies will struggle to maintain communal integrity in the face of both majority culture and internal divisions. And Rav Sa'adigaon is going to play a critical role in both the quest for the divine and the defense of the community of the faithful. So, Rav Sa'adja. He's born in the year 882 in Fayum, which is in Upper Egypt. That's why they call him the Fayumi. And we know that his early education actually set him on a track which would make him fundamentally different than any of his predecessors in the Gonet. He was actually such a pioneer in the fields in which he worked that 200 years after his death, Rav Abram ibn Ezra would actually apply to him a phrase reserved to the Tanaim, to the great masters of the Mishnah, calling him Rosh Hamidabrim Bekomakom, the first head of words in every place. Because Rav Sadia actually revolutionized the entire literary field within which the Gaonim worked. His predecessors kept themselves exclusively to writing responsa, right? That was the question and response structure that we discussed in the last episode, and legal commentaries, basically, on specific questions within the Talmud. Whereas he actually was involved in many, many other things. And interestingly enough, the root of most of them lay in the land of Israel. So, from the little documentation we actually have of his early life, we know that Rav Sadia spent many years studying in the land of Israel, likely in the academy in Tiberia. Because though the sages of Eretz Israel had actually dropped out of any leadership role in the law that we spoke about last episode, they nevertheless continued to be a critical source of an incredible narrative creativity. And this creativity would have many outlets. But the most dramatic amongst them was certainly the composition of piutim, liturgical poetry. You know, the word piut is actually from the same Greek root that gives us the English words poet and poetry. Now, the writing of these piyotim was not simply art. It was actually a living tradition of prayer, a tradition that shows in its records a regular deviation from the formal liturgy in response to significant days in the calendar. And through the piyotim, prayer was maintained as always new and timely, and, of course, beautiful. Now, also beyond the simple poetry, and even this liturgical creativity, Piyotim are actually often midrash in poetic form. 
They're a vehicle for creative textual exploration, which the Python, the author, would write, and then the congregation would participate in as they prayed. And in this sense, they're a perfect parallel form to all the classic works of Midrash, which were mostly actually compiled in Eretz Israel in the early Gaonic period. Perhaps the best known Python poet is Rabbi Eliezer Hakalir. And his poetry, if you recognize it all, the Ashkenazi write, still takes a central role in the penitential prayers we say in the month of Elul and in the morning songs that we say on the 9th of Av. And we'll get to it more when we get to Spain about how passions run high about poetry. But you should know that legend has it that the Kalir was actually assassinated by a jealous rival who slipped a scorpion into his shoe when he wasn't looking. Now, Piyut, this liturgical poetry, is of course rooted specifically in Eretz Yisrael because this is where Hebrew remained a live and rich language. In fact, Piyut was such an Eretz Yisrael specialty that the Gaonim, as we spoke of last week, who were attempting to make Babylonian traditional supreme, actually made every effort to discourage it and to restore what they considered to be the proper and legally binding words of prayer. But nevertheless, Rosadja carried the day, and it's clear from his earliest writings that he was committed to poetry. In fact, what may be his first published work is known as the Agron, the Gatherer, and it is, in many ways, the first dictionary ever of the Hebrew language. Now, it's not a complete dictionary. It's actually a rhyming dictionary, which means that it's meant to assist in the composition of poetry, and in general, as he says in his introduction, to lift the contemporary standard of Hebrew speech. It's an introduction, some word lists to help with rhyming, and some general rules on composition. So as I said, it was Rav Sanjay that actually brought poetry into the Gaonic circles, although really his efforts would strike their deepest roots in medieval Spain. So another definitive element of the culture of the Jewish Middle Ages, which was introduced into the Gaonic mainstream by Rav Sanjay, was biblical exegesis. Yeah, it's a fun word, but what does it mean anyway? It's very simple. It's a critical explanation or interpretation of a text, and usually referring to sacred texts. Because Rav Sanjay not only began the process of biblical exegesis for the Gaonim, he practically created Hebrew philology. That's right. <laughs> What's that? It's a branch of knowledge that deals with the structure, historical development, and relationship of a language to other languages. And of course, a mastery of the development of language is the absolute necessary prerequisite for sound analysis. Rav Sajia's grammatical works, which we really only have in fragments, mostly from the Cairo Geniza, were actually the first attempt we have recorded at any scientific knowledge of the Hebrew language. Now, he also took a particularly radical stance, which will see its far-reaching implications when we get to medieval Spain. And that was his explanation of Hebrew vocabulary through the Arabic, particularly in translation of certain biblical words by Arabic terms which have the same sounds. Now, in the land of Israel at this time, not only were the Paitanim, the poets, hard at work, but the Masoretes, the masters of the traditional text of the Bible, were also hard at work as well. They were deeply immersed in the task of language and in this case, the clarification and codification of the traditions around how to read the text of the Bible. Remember, Hebrew has no vowels 
or punctuation in its native form. And also remember that the meaning of words in the biblical text can shift radically according to how a sentence is punctuated, much less how words are vocalized. Now, all the way back in the Gemara and Shabbat, we see that it was the Nevi'im who taught the people the five final letters of what's known as Mansapach, the Mem Nun Tzari Pechet, the five letters in Hebrew which actually have a final form when they come at the end of a word. There's also a Yushalma that says this came from Moshe with the Torah originally. No matter how you understand these traditions, what they're teaching us is that the most powerful bastion of oral law, the integrity of transmission of how you actually read the written text, is as old as the text itself, because without these final letters, without a knowledge of how to pronounce the words, it's just an unbroken string of letters. Furthermore, we have significant testimony from as early as the 2nd, 3rd century before the Common Era, that there was a definitive text of the Torah which resided in the temple courts, and which was used as a proof text to correct other versions. But nevertheless, the masteries as we know them, the schools of rabbis who were the inheritors of the oral tradition of how the text was to be properly read, really began their work in the 6th or 7th century of the Common Era. And it was a parallel process, actually, to the redaction of the Mishnah. They took a tradition that had always remained oral and committed it to writing in various forms that you may recognize now, marks, dots, abbreviations, acronyms. And it was the masteries who produced the text that we have today, based in Tiberia, with centuries of work. And if you're familiar with the famous Aleppo Codex and the Leningrad Codex, both of which date from the late 10th, early 11th centuries, then you have seen the final product of their work. And you should know that scholars look at the Masoretic pointing and punctuation as possibly one of the greatest literary and linguistic achievements in history, because without their works, there would be irreconcilable arguments about how you read our most sacred text. And, of course, Rav Sadia was their student, because in addition to his mastery of the poetic and grammatical aspects of the Hebrew language, Rav Sadia is said to be the first non-Karite authority who began writing biblical commentary. It's astounding, something which is a hallmark of medieval Jewish culture did not exist before Rav Sadia in Rabbinic Judaism. So, not only did he write a systematic commentary in Arabic, he actually translated the Torah and perhaps the entire Bible into Arabic as well. Why? Because at this time there was actually an Islamic diaspora, as we spoke about. The Islamic Empire encompasses more than 90% of world Jewry, and they are progressively becoming foreigners to the Hebrew language. Arabic is their native tongue. And therefore, Rav Sanjah's Arabic translation of the Bible is going to be a central factor in the interpenetration of Arabic and Jewish culture. This will have consequences way beyond the ability to read the text. And in that respect, it actually belongs in the same category as the Septuagint, that Greek translation of the Bible we spoke about from the 3rd century before the Common Era, and another one which we'll speak about, please God, in the coming episodes, and that's the German translation of the Torah, which is undertaken by Moses Mendelssohn in the 18th century. Now, though Rav Sadja was actually the first of the Gaonim to engage in any literary efforts in Arabic because of the versatility of the style of the language and because of the needs, as we spoke of, of this Arabic-speaking diaspora. Nevertheless, there was no doubt in his mind 
that it was the Hebrew language which was the true vehicle for the expression of the divine, which was the role of Am Yisrael in the world. I'll give you a quote from his introduction to the Agron. There was one language throughout the land, from the days when God created man on the face of the earth until the days of that stormy herd. He's referring to the Tower of Babel. And the holy tongue remained in the mouths of the children of Ever alone after the people were dispersed, because they were found to be true before God. And he goes on to say that this ability to be true before God is linked inextricably with the ability to speak the Hebrew language. And thus he fought a tremendous battle to bring Am Yisrael's commitment and mastery of that language back to life. Now, the idea that Hebrew is the primeval language has its roots in a Midrashic reading of the Torah itself. It's just that in the Agron and elsewhere, Rav Sadja actually elevates this idea into a neoclassical ideal, once again a longing for a lost linguistic golden age. So though he is, as I said, the first of the Gaonim to produce any literary works in Arabic, nevertheless he's also the prime mover of a renaissance of Hebrew language, a return to Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue, as the pure tongue of the Jewish people, an ideal which, once again, will truly flower in the poetry and philology of medieval Spain. So, we've seen a number of literary products, and Rosaja was actually also the first of the Gaonim, as far as we can tell, to engage in large-scale polemics, public argument as well. One of his earliest works is Refutation of Anan and his attacks on the Karaites. And he was also involved in a very important fight between the Gonim and the sages of Eretz Yisrael. Now, it's assumed by historians that Rav Sadia was known to scholars as an author and scholar already from his days in Eretz Yisrael. But he was elevated to public fame during the last phase of the struggle between the authorities of Eretz Yisrael and the Gonim of Babylon, the Great Calendar Controversy. As we spoke about in the last episode, the calculations surrounding the Hebrew calendar were actually one of the last strongholds of a halakhic authority that still resided in the land of Israel up until the late 9th, early 10th centuries when the Gaonim of Babel had gotten hold of more or less everything else. And in the year 921 of the Common Era, an argument arose concerning the calendar which threatened the unity of the entire Jewish world. Now, I hope you recall, if you don't, you can do some review of previous episodes, that since Hillel II, around 359 of the Common Era, the calendar had been based on a series of rules, rather than what the Torah requires, which is the observation of the moon's phases and live testimony given to the Sanhedrin, the High Court. And one of these rules required that the date of Rosh Hashanah be postponed if the appearance of the new moon of that month was calculated to occur at noon or later during the day. You got that? So Rabbi Aaron ben Meir was the leader of the academy in Israel, then located in Ramle, and he claimed a tradition based in the traditions of the sages of Eretz Yisrael, according to which the cutoff point was actually 35 minutes after noon. You may not think that that's such a big deal, but in that particular year, the difference was going to result in a two-day schism with all of the major communities in Babel. Because according to Rav Ben Meir, the first day of Passover would fall out on Sunday, while according to the Gaonim in Babel, it would be on a Tuesday. Everybody 
exploded. The Goanim erupted in protest. They started writing letters to Rab Meir and the entire diaspora in an effort to win over everyone to the Babylonian position. Rab Meir, in turn, sent out his own messages, claiming the ancient prerogative of the sages of Eretz Israel in all matters of the calendar and getting people over to his side. And Rav Sa'adia, even though at the time he had no official standing in the Goanic academies, took a leading role in defense of the Babylonian tradition. But by the spring of 922, all they'd succeeded in doing with their polemics was confusing everyone, and chaos reigned. And that Pesach, there were numerous communities, perhaps including even some within Babylon itself, who followed Rav ben Meir and celebrated the first day of Passover on Sunday. This was a potential catastrophe. You have to understand that even today, the calendar is the last thing which unites the entire Jewish world. There are theological, political, social rifts which split Am Yisrael today. All you have to do is look in the news or talk to your neighbors. But no one argues about what day Pesach falls out. So just imagine what would have happened if that had fallen apart. But don't be alarmed. By Rosh Hashanah of the very same year, the fight was already over. Rav Sadja and the Ka'onim of Bavel had once again carried the day, and the power of Eretz Yisrael to dictate anything in the halachic structure was gone forever. And this contribution not only introduced Rav Sadja to public life, it almost certainly helped him to achieve the highest office when he was appointed as Gaon of Surah in the year 928 of the Common Era. Now, Surah had fallen on hard times. And by the early 10th century, there were even thoughts of shutting down what was really the oldest seat of learning in all of Babylon, basically for lack of qualified scholars to lead it. The exilarch, David ben Zakkai, looked to this young, energetic Egyptian to save the day. In fact, this was actually against the advice of some of his close advisors, who looked a little askance at Rav Sadja, both because of his non-Babylonian origins and because of his well-known combative personality. Nevertheless, the Exilarch persevered, and at age 46, Rav Sadja became the first and only non-Babylonian to ever serve as Gaon. And the decision worked, in that the Academy certainly thrived under his leadership, as did the Torah in general, a bit of which we've already demonstrated. But it wasn't without struggle. Because a few years into his Ga'onet, Rav Sa'adi refused to confirm a judicial appointment which was made by the Exilarch. Now, in retaliation, the Exilarch announced that Rav Sa'adi was no longer Ga'on of Surah, and he appointed another and, frankly, inferior scholar in his stead. But Rav Sa'adi was never one to back down from a fight. So instead of seeking reconciliation, he actually deposed the Exilarch and announced the appointment of another in his place. And for seven years, the Jews of Babylonia were divided into two camps, sometimes armed camps. And even their attempts to bribe the Muslim authorities in the favor of one side or another couldn't actually tip the scales. Eventually, thank God, a reconciliation was reached, and Rav Sajet was once again universally recognized as the Gaon of Surah. But when he died in 942, after serving only 14 years as Gaon, he'd spent nearly half that time in a shadow capacity. And nevertheless, Rav Sa'adjeh managed, as I said, to revolutionize the office of the Gaonet, and through that, to lay the framework for the Middle Ages. Now, his specific contributions are actually too many to list, 
I've already mentioned the introduction of the writing of Piutim, of this liturgical poetry, into Gaonic culture of Babylon, where they actually became part of mainstream Jewish culture. We mentioned reviving interest in the study of the Hebrew language. We mentioned beginning the process of biblical exegesis, which actually became something that the rest of the Gaonim pursued as well. He also, something we didn't mention, brought with him from the land of Israel the Palestinian Talmud, the tradition of Eretz Israel of post-Mishnaic learning, something which had been more or less ignored in the academies of Bavel, and through this actually fused post-Mishnaic rabbinic thought into one unit which could serve the generations ahead. This is an awful lot, but I actually want to close with what may have been his most fateful and fraught contribution, the beginnings of Jewish theology. So anyone who's ever spent any significant time learning the Gemara and other rabbinic texts knows that classical rabbinic Judaism placed very little weight on dogma. Any attempt to extract coherent theology from the Gemara and Midrashic literature is bound to come away with, at best, a notion of the unity of God and the revelation of the Torah to Israel, and not much else. And even these are going to be far from simplistic in their presentation. Because the theology the Gemara offers is complex, fragmented, sometimes contradictory, but most important, it's actually presented as stories, which of course means that their ultimate meaning is going to lie in the mind of the reader, not in the text. But Rav Sachi was going at a very particular time. It was a time when both Christianity and Islam were engaged in systematizing their own beliefs and in defending them from one another and from the diverse voices from within through the particular method of reasoned argument. Now, the historical context for this is bound up with a phenomenon which is known as the Kalam. It was a school of speculative theology. The word Kalam actually means speech or discourse that emerged in Muslim society as a companion to the growing body of Islamic law, of jurisprudence. Now, why was it called Kalam, speech or discourse? Because the representatives of the three monotheistic faiths who shared the assumption that both religious and philosophical traditions were the custodians of truth, actually came together with the goal of arriving at a purified conception of God, a conception that can actually stand up to rational criticism based in philosophy, but would nevertheless preserve the key concept of a personal God, a God who is concerned for and communicates with humanity. Now remember, this is the very historical context in which the works of the classic Greek philosophers begin to make their way back into religious culture through their translation into Arabic. And therefore, when these three faiths, who realized that an attempt to reconcile their scriptures was only going to lead to bloodshed, they looked to the foundations of Greek philosophical notions as a basis for their discussion. They were the rational principles that could be accepted by everyone. Arguments from scripture were inadmissible in these discussions, and they were actually discussions. They occurred in places or situations called majalis, basically salon meetings, intellectual salon meetings, and they would have a profound effect on all three faiths and reached its height basically in the 11th century before either it petered out or was suppressed, depending on whose history you read. And Rav Sadia was the most important of the Jewish 
mutakalimun, the participants in these discussions, as a result of his experience, and also the sense he shared that the time was right for the clarification of theological boundaries, he brought Jewish theology into formal existence with the publication of his great work, Emunot Videot, which was published in the year 933 of the Common Era. Now, it's tough to translate what Emunot Videot exactly means. You could call it beliefs and opinions, perhaps. The book is essentially a compilation of ten essays, whose focus is to extract theological principles from an incredibly inspired and creative reading of an enormous amount of biblical verses. And that's key, because with the exception of his treatment of eschatology, the end-of-days theology, rabbinic sources actually play a very minor role. This is mostly about the Bible. And in his introduction, Rav Sajjah makes clear his reason for creating, once again, a whole new genre of Jewish literary work. He says, My heart was grieved when I saw the confusion concerning matters of religion which prevailed amongst my contemporaries. I saw men sunk, as it were, in seas of doubt and covered by waters of confusion, and there was no diver to bring them up from the depths and no swimmer to come to their aid. And therefore, he stepped into those deep waters. And he says he undertook the work for two reasons. Number one, in order that we may find out for ourselves what we know in the way of imparted knowledge from the prophets of God, meaning to clarify the divine message which we hold in our inheritance, and number two, in order that we may be able to refute those who attack us on matters connected with our religion. And here it is once again, the two phases of Kedusha, of sanctity, clarifying what we know in order to connect to God and maintaining the boundaries of who we are. But what I believe to actually be the most far-reaching impact of Emunot Videot, beliefs and opinions, is actually a little bit further on in the introduction, where Rav Sadia lays out an epistemology that would actually shape the way Jews know the world for many generations to come. Yeah, I did it again. I used one of those words. So epistemology is a theory of knowledge. Not what you know. It's how you know anything. In other words, what is it that distinguishes justified belief from opinion, emuna and dea. So Rav Sajjah says that there are three universally accepted sources of knowing. Number one, sensory perception. He says the starting point of knowledge is invariably of a concrete nature, and its final result will be an abstract ideal. What you can touch is real. Number two, direct intellectual comprehension. That's book learning. You may have never touched an atom, but you can learn about it through someone else's communicated experience. And number three, logical inference. As in, where there's smoke, there's fire. You don't have to see the fire to know that it's there. And then he says, there's actually a fourth source of knowledge, which is shared by all monotheists, and that's authentic tradition. Now here, he reveals his hand, because in reality, this whole work is about reconciling reason and revelation, philosophy and religion. And he says that sense perception, reason, and inferential knowledge all require time to understand and conceptualize, and not everybody makes it. 
There's a process to rational knowledge, and many people give up along the way or make fundamental mistakes. But authentic tradition, revelation, can be considered what he calls immediate knowledge. Rav Sanji says that the Torah is like a report that one trusts automatically. It's an immediate source for certain knowledge about the world, and thus can serve as a foundation upon which one can use their reason. And thus, in his teaching, revelation becomes the grounding context for any knowledge at all. For people who have ever given any thought to the postmodern problem of the absence of any solid ground from which to build epistemology from, you can see that he's dancing around it. And what's fascinating to me is that Rav Sajjah is also the one who introduces the argument which will actually become the central logical proof of the truth of the Torah for many generations to come. To this very day, I hear people quote it. And that's the argument from mass revelation. This idea that the Torah says 600,000 men of military age witnessed the revelation at Sinai, and you could never make such a thing up because at some point you would have to convince everyone that it happened to them, or at the very least that their fathers had told them a lie. This becomes, in history, the basis for a way of life in the same way that revelation serves as the context for all critical knowledge. Unfortunately, I feel in the post-Nazi era that argument has kind of fallen apart. Nevertheless, for our purposes, Rav Sajjah felt it was sound, and he goes on to say, I think the most important piece, that rational speculation, read philosophy, is actually a religious obligation. He quotes Isaiah saying, Do you not understand the foundations of the earth? Meaning, you better figure it out. Rosaji says that through one's reason, you can clarify doubt, remove errors from thought, in a constant process until you are completely free of all doubt. By building the process of reason on the foundation of revelation, Rav Saji is actually aiming to transform the doubts and errors of Am Yisrael into sound and reliable beliefs. And in so doing, he creates a way of knowing the world that's going to characterize a significant portion of Jews to this very day. So here it is. With the addition of theology now to the study of language, biblical exegesis, the unification of rabbinic learning from the land of Israel and Babel, and the beauty of poetry. Rav Saja has now laid the spiritual and intellectual groundwork for the Jewish Middle Ages that lie ahead. And furthermore, by employing the Arabic language and Greek philosophical structures, as well as engaging in what amounts to interfaith dialogue, he's also engaging the fundamental challenge which the Middle Ages will offer. And that is how to maintain the relevance and vitality of the Torah in the face of rising new cultures and new ways of knowing the world. Rav Sajia, clearly in his own life, demonstrates that this type of engagement doesn't have to be a threat. It can actually be a constant source of creativity and renewal. But his attempt to integrate philosophy and religion, reason and revelation, has also been a step back into a very old conflict. Because if you recall, the last systematic attempt at such a reconciliation between the Torah and Greek philosophy was actually done by Philo of Alexandria in the first century before the Common Era. And in the end, Philo succeeded in lowering the inviolate sanctity of the Torah, 
by attempting to reconcile it through the mechanism of allegory. And in doing so, he actually opened the doors to Christianity. Go back and review some of the previous episodes if you have no idea what I'm talking about. But in our case, by once again pursuing this two-track approach to the truth, Rav Sadja unwittingly will sow the same seeds of discord in Am Yisrael. And they, along with all of his other efforts, will actually flower in the soil of Spain in a form of skepticism and then a reactionary fundamentalism which will breach the walls of community and lead to Jews who will burn the books of the Rambam. And so, it's really Spain on our horizon. And I'd like to close maybe with the story of how it is exactly Am Yisrael tells the tale of the transition from the living heart of Babylon to the really furthest flung element of the exile, to Spain. So Aaron ibn Daud, in his work, Sefer Kabbalah, tells the following story. Somewhere in the middle of the 10th century, the great academies of Babel sent some of the leading scholars with their families on a fundraising mission to Italy. Their names were Rabbi Shmaria, Rabbi Chushel, and Rabbeinu Moshe ben Enoch. And in those days, the Christian-Muslim battle for supremacy raged on the seas, and all the waterways were infested with pirates, or freedom fighters, depending on which side you are, and their business was to seize whatever ship they found on the high seas and sell their passengers into slavery. And there was a certain sea captain called Ibn Umahis who captured the ship of these great rabbis and took all of the passengers as prisoners. And he recognized right away that these rabbis would bring a handsome price from the large Jewish communities of North Africa, Spain, and Italy. So he went first to Alexandria, where he ransomed off Rab Shmaria, and the community there was more than happy to pay the enormous amount of money that he asked, and Rab Shmaria actually went on to become the chief rabbi of Fostat of Old Cairo. So the pirate continued on his voyage along the African coast until he reached the great port town of Kerouan in Tunisia, and there he brought out his second captive, Rabbi Hushiel, and again the local Jewish community paid a massive amount of ransom money and saved Rabbi Hushiel, and he too in the end founded a great yeshiva and became the chief rabbi of Kerouan. Two of his great disciples, who perhaps we'll speak about in coming episodes, were Rabbeinu Hananel and Rabbeinu Nisim. So on sailed Ibn Rumais. The last stop, of course, was Spain. There was only Rabbeinu Moshe now left of his four great captives, so after many days at sea, the ship cast anchor at Cordoba, and here Rabbeinu Moshe and his son were very quickly ransomed by the community. But Rabbeinu Moshe was so humble, he didn't want to reveal to the people who he was, that he was in fact one of the Gaonim. He just remained in their eyes the captive, until one day as he was sitting in the academy, listening to a Talmudic discourse given by the Dayan, the local community rabbi, he heard him make a mistake. And at that point, Rabbeinu Moshe couldn't hold back. He approached Rav Natan, the rabbi of the community, after the class, and very modestly pointed out how astoundingly wrong he was. Rav Natan, of course, looking at this man as some poor captive, argued back, at which point Rabbeinu Moshe deepened his argument, at which point Rav Natan argued back, at which point Rav Moshe deepened his argument, at which point Rav Natan said, wait a minute, this is no ordinary captive. And he took him out in the street and declared him on the spot 
to be the new chief rabbi. He said, I am not worthy to lead this community in the presence of this man. And from then on, Rabbeinu Moshe became famous not only in Cordoba, but throughout all of the peninsula of Spain and well beyond. Young men began to flow into Spain to the center of Rabbeinu Moshe's academy, and Cordoba became a flourishing Jewish center of learning. And that's where our story will leave us now, with Babylon behind and Spain on the horizon. I want to thank everybody who makes this possible. Really, you know, there are just over 30 people who give their hard-earned money to keep this material coming out, to keep it distributed, syndicated, and free and available to all. If you want to join them, I encourage you to go now to www.patreon.com and find my M Foyer page, and you can give a per-podcast donation. I want to thank the folks at the Land of Israel Network for giving me the opportunity to reach such a broad swath of the human experience. I want to thank Pardes, that's P-A-R-D-E-S dot org dot I-L, for letting me touch the hearts of so many different types of Jews. I want to thank Sulam Yaakov, sulamyaakov.com, for giving me such a beloved home. And I want to thank you for listening. I'm Rob Mike Boyer, and this is The Jewish Story.